HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. It's brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I will have your host, Darren Bresnitz. On the other half, your host, Greg Bresnitz. And on a very special episode today, we have Emily Takutis, commissioning editor of Fade In, who also happened to commission our book, Snacky Tunes, Music is the Main Ingredient, which is out now on Faded. Yeah, Emily, thank you so much for believing in us and taking a chance on this project. Um, still can't believe it's real, but you saw it before we did, so thank you so much. Well, I mean, one of us had to write the proposal to get her to see something, but yes, afterwards. We both wrote the proposal anyway. We talked with Emily about her long, long career and very, I mean, impressive. It doesn't really do it justice, but just incredible career in publishing and just, you know, saying that she was in the room where it happened is an understatement. Yes. We go all the way back to her early beginnings as a ballet dancer and her time in Berlin and then trace her illustrious career all the way up through now at Faden. Uh, one quick correction is that Emily in the interview said that she wrote the memoir of Waiter Rant. Instead, she did sign it and edit it. So just a clear clarification. And clear before clarification. we get to the show, we're going on tour. Oh, yeah. We're going on tour. How exciting. Uh, From the very comfort of our own bedrooms and living rooms, we're going on this international tour. We have our New York event coming up this week yes we have wild air thrice Arcastratus, and our own hrn are all involved um all the events are free but we highly encourage you if you have not bought a copy of the book yet to please go to our independent book selling partner which is Arcastratus, and buy a copy of the book uh all the information yes. is at snackytoons.com you can go there 
You can sign up for reminders. You can check out all the different lineups. And we really hope to see you uh, at least virtually on some of these events. Yes, and some of the proceeds from all the events will be going to different charities of the Chef and Band's Choice. And, uh, yeah, we're super excited. Yeah, this one is the Independent Restaurant Council. If you have not checked them out, please go to their site. Please encourage your legislator to push the bill to the floor. Um, please share, 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 share. They're looking for $120 billion to save our restaurants. So many places we love are already closed. Please go to Independent Restaurant Council and check out all the great work they're doing. Yeah, well, sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacking Tunes here on HRN. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Emily, it is such a great honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. We really appreciate and welcome to Snacky Tune. Thank you. It's uh, such a pleasure to be on your show. Really a treat. Thank you. You know, it's uh, it's so amazing that you've been in the publishing world for two decades now. And we've all seen the rise of digital, but you have stayed very much in the physical publishing world. What continues your passion for this type of medium? Well, I think it's a few things. First of all, I grew up quite the avid reader. I spent a lot of time in the library. I was one of those kids. I was always at bookstores and my mom was a bookseller, actually. Um, I worked at a library during college and I've always had this need in my life for the physical book somehow just to hold it in my hands, you know, so I've, I've never even been an ebook reader in the time that, that that's been around. So to have the opportunity to have this role in selecting authors to publish and, and really move through that creative process of bookmaking is, is quite a dream for me. So as much as my life and everyone's life is is online right now, nothing for me can really replace that sensation of like touching and pouring through and really reading an actual book. Do you have a book from your childhood? Uh, like I have uh, See You Later by Christopher Pike, which is a mm. terrible young adult novel that I like <laughs> loved and then tried to go back read it later. And I was very embarrassed how much I loved it. Time. Like, do you have a one of those that really touched you at a certain age, but you like would, you know, couldn't stomach it now? That's a great question. Definitely um, Bridge Bridge of Terabithia, or maybe it was Bridge to Terabithia by Catherine mm. Peterson. That book just completely blew me away. I probably read it around age 10, give or take. Um, and Bridge to Terabithia definitely had an influence on me. I have been so hesitant to go back and read it <laughs> as an adult mm-hmm. uh, because I just don't know if I would have that same reaction to it. It was very moving at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely some things that the fondness of time really just elevates the book. Sometimes you wish you could put that onto a a written piece and just be like, yeah, just read it like 10 years and think about it. (laughs) Um, You know, when we were reading up about uh, your different pursuits, especially in your younger years, it came up that you studied ballet, which, as we know, is like very disciplined, very practical. But in many ways, it seems like it's the foundation of your approach to your professional career. Have you brought any of that ballet dancing and mindset to editing and your work uh, in books? Definitely. Um, I had this really, really intense dance training experience. I left home when I was 15 to uh, train at the North Carolina School of the Arts and in Houston. And after I graduated from high school, I lived in Germany for four years and trained and and performed and toured. And it, it definitely demanded quite a healthy amount of, well, I don't know if it was healthy, but a decent amount of, of rigor and discipline and uh, and dedication. And, and when I look back on that, I kind of can't believe the focus and physicality that it took. But yeah, that set of skills and that sort of laser-eyed mission definitely didn't leave me. Now, I could have never dreamed that I could apply that skill set to being a cookbook editor. At the time, for me, what I was doing could only 100% be applied to my body and the dancing and the movement. So when I was dancing, the focus was fully on that. It really, really never did occur to me that that experience could even be useful for something so very different. But you're absolutely right. It's it's definitely applied every day. I mean, uh, before we uh, have you arrive in New York, 
uh, you spent time in Berlin, and I'm curious about your time there because you said you were involved in local politics and how that kind of shaped the types of books and literature and, and what particularly you read there that might have at that age focused your future. I mean, for me, when I was living in Berlin, I had uh, just stopped dancing, actually. And it was a few years after the wall came down. I was living in East Berlin and um, I wasn't necessarily actively involved in local politics. It was more of a fascination. It was the it was the 50th anniversary of the end of the war. Um, people my age were starting to talk to, about, to their grandparents about what they were doing during the war. The art scene was incredible. I mean, you'd be in East Berlin and you'd, you'd go into some sort of like pockmarked building and you'd go down an alleyway into a courtyard and another building, another courtyard, and there'd be the most extraordinary modern dance uh, performance piece going on at like nine o'clock at night. It was just historically, politically, culturally, artistically, East Berlin was alive in a way that completely blew my mind. Um, and so that that had a great influence on me. Um, yeah. You know, coming out of Berlin and into New York in the late 90s, early 2000s, seems like just such an exciting and inspiring time. Um, you, you know, we didn't get to New York until about 2005, but even you could feel this creative energy just pouring out of the city, which I think why so many of us, like a siren song that, that brought people, um, you know, to, to the Big Apple. But I'd love to hear what your experience was like and what the publishing world was like late nineties, early two thousands um, when you got to New York, because I, I remember it also being like books just being, I don't want to say like the end of like the big sort of blockbuster book, but it just, I remember growing up in that time and reading and just like book after book, you know, publishing after publishing was just a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, those early years in New York were, quite thrilling for me. I, uh, in 1999, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I moved to New York specifically to be an editorial assistant. Um, and just to set the stage a bit, I mean, at that time, people had really been doing email for just a few years. And some of the editors at Little Brown and Company, which was where I, I first worked, they were doing everything on paper. Nobody was editing electronically. I, there were still those memos, carbon copies, and triplicate. You know, I, I, there was, I didn't have a cell phone, uh, no computer at home, so I wasn't checking my Yahoo account on the weekends. You know, it was, it was very much this unplugged existence. Um, I lived in a studio apartment in Hell's Kitchen near the theater district, and life was really good. I felt like I was about to embark on something exciting as an assistant in book publishing, you know, and um, it was, it was really, really exciting. And uh, it's funny getting, you know, knowing that this date was approaching, that we would be speaking. I've had some time to think about those, those early years in publishing and how exciting they were for someone embarking on, on a career. And uh, I thought of a few things actually that I wanted to share with you that I just remembered from, from that time, if it's okay with share you. Share away. Oh yeah. Yeah. There was, um, I mean, it's nothing too salacious or, or crazy, <laughs> but I do remember I got to Little Brown and they had recently been uh, publishing David Sedaris 
it was shortly after the book he published where he talked about working at Macy's Santa Land and it was hilarious. So for me, it was so cool because, you know, whenever David Sedaris had an event somewhere, I would be part of the publisher posse, you know, that would go to these events and it felt like a very cool moment. Um, and I did my first editing actually at Little Brown. Um, and it was, it was not a book. It was an afterword. It was an afterword and a paperback edition. And I can talk a bit more about the paper, paperback experience later, but, um, the afterword was by Annie Prue. And just a couple of years before her story broke back, mountain had appeared in the New Yorker to a lot of acclaim. It was, it was many years before the movie came out. And, uh, she just won the Pulitzer Prize. And I'm thinking, my gosh, this is the first person <laughs> I'm editing. So I edited the afterward in red pen because that's what I'd seen in the movies. And I was a little bit too nervous <laughs> to ask how one edits. Um, and I remember mailing the edits to her in Wyoming and like waiting for her letter back to see which edits she accepted. So that was um, that was another part of the exciting experience was actually truly editing for the for the very first time. Um, but one thing I was thinking about in particular was probably one of my most exciting early days in publishing. And um, there was this famed writer named J.T. Leroy in those years. Oh, and yeah, J.T. Leroy called my direct phone line at work. It was about a book I'd worked on. I have no idea how he got my number. And I just remember thinking I really made it. You know, I'd only been in publishing for like two years, but it was like a famous author and he was calling me and I was a junior editor and we talked for a whole hour. Well, years later, the world would learn that there was no such person as JT Leroy. And uh, while a great writer, he was a fraud and a mashup of people who was tricking everyone. But for years, I did not remove his name from my Rolodex because I really wanted to remember the exciting call that I had that day um, early in my career. So. Oh my God. Well, I have to say that Ian and Pruel were talking about books that shaped us. Shipping News was mm. absolute legend and side note, total travesty as a movie. But that book was sort of a book that we all connected on over high school. Mm. Um, that was just sort of like a dog-eared copy passed around. Uh, one of the interesting things that you did at Little Brown was uh, you just rediscovered out-of-print classics and put them back into print. Um, what was that like? And, and I now imagine because you're painting such a vivid scene that it's just like this warehouse of like manuscripts or book. And it's just like <laughs> young Emily in the city uh, <laughs> thinking about like JT Leroy. And then all of a sudden you're just like, I've discovered this like book. Like how, what was the process of that? Now it would just be like, oh, I looked in our, you know, digitized archives and just sent it to the printing press. <laughs> Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I actually feel quite fortunate that my first job was as an assistant in the paperback division. It was kind of an unusual start. Um, but I had this chance to see how to essentially republish every single book the company had published in hardcover the year before. So aside from my experience of growing as an editor and understanding what that meant, it was also this wonderful lesson in sort of the 360 degree approach to publishing, how to market, how to package how to position a book for the marketplace, how to reinvent a book that perhaps didn't do as well in hardcover, you know, how to find an audience that was based on what we'd learned through the publishing of, of the hardcover. And I was lucky in that Little Brown had this incredible history of publishing great literary work since the 1800s. 
Um, and my boss, Terry Adams, had been seeking some great out-of-print titles when I was there. And he was always sending me to the, uh, the main branch of the New York Public Library, the one at Bryant Park. And part of my job was to look up old book reviews on microfiche, which I would then excerpt into quotes for the paperback covers. Um, and he encouraged me to mine the old titles of Little Brown as well. So there was this very special novel, I guess you could consider it a, a literary Western, and it was called The Power of the Dog, written by a man named Thomas Savage, and it was published in 1967 by Little Brown. It had a cover by the late great designer Milton Glaser, actually. Um, and my grandmother had been a fan of his work. And through my dad's suggestion, I brought up the idea to Terry to republish the book. I found out the author was still alive. I became close with the author. There was all this media surrounding the reissue. And it was my first book, if you will, you know, even though it had been published before. And it was at that moment that I really felt like I was embarking on this publishing career of mine. And when the author passed away a few years later, I was even quoted in the New York Times obituary about the one to rediscover him. And I was so, so proud of that experience. And being an assistant in paperbacks is really what, what made it possible. Um, and as a side note, I found out a few months ago that the filmmaker Jane Campion is making a movie version of the book with Kirsten Dunst and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, you have picked up so many things already by this point in your career. And a lot of it comes from the mentorship and the leadership of people that you work with, which is really nice to hear about the publishing career. And it really does feel in many ways um, like there is this hierarchy mentor mentee partnership in publishing because it is people who are sort of handing over the keys of how to put books together, what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, we know that. Um, you worked with the legendary Alice Mayhew, uh, who we unfortunately lost this year. Um, but that must have been also quite a learning experience. And we'd love to little, know a little bit more what it was like to work for such a, a titan, but also what you took away from working with her. Yeah, I mean, working for Alice was quite extraordinary. Her office had uh, covers of the New York Times book reviews that featured books that she had signed up. And there were dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of them. Um, so just physically walking into the space that was her office and the office of her her employees was, was pretty intimidating and overwhelming. So I was at Little Brown for four years. And so I went to work for, for Alice at Simon & Schuster. Um, and my role for her was to edit pretty major works of history, biography, memoir, and current events, all nonfiction, that she signed up. Um, but what it meant was that I was line editing amazing authors, that there's no way that I would have been able to sign up the caliber of authors, you know, that I was working with. So, for example, I had the, the great, great privilege of working directly with President Jimmy Carter during that time. I mean, we emailed, we spoke on the phone, we talked about my edits. It was it was really like any other editor-author relationship, except that he'd been president. <laughs> um, he he had this incredible work ethic. He would write every morning from five to eight, and then he'd do woodworking, and then he would focus on Habitat for Humanity, or you know, bringing democracy to nations around the world, <laughs> or writing his famed Sunday school sermons. You know, it was really though such an honor. And so, working with Alice, I had this opportunity to work with some extraordinary people. Um, and I have this cherished photo with him, and we did stay in touch for some years afterwards. But 
more than anything during my time with Alice, I just, I had this opportunity to mine edit thousands and thousands of pages of high caliber nonfiction at that time. And I really learned how to polish a book and identify really whatever was needed to bring out the best and to revise what needed help. Amazing. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick musical break, song from the archives, and then when we come back, we're going to get into your work and your career in the world of culinary publishing. Uh, we have a song deep from the archives here on HRN.
next in your career, you moved to Echo, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, um, around 2005. And this is when food really started coming into your literary career. Can you give the audience an overview of what the food, cookbook, culinary scene was in the publishing world at that time? Yeah. Um, so as we talked about, you know, I'd been working with Alice for some time, which for me was sort of like having a golden ticket in the publishing world. And so I was now seen as a full nonfiction editor who could sign up books and edit them. And it was in 2005 that I was hired by Dan Halpern. Um, he founded Echo as an independent press decades before. And, you know, we had an interview, but to be honest, we didn't discuss food in the interview. Um, and so when I started the job, he told me about some books under contract that I really needed to get started on. And one was a food narrative, which I was excited about because although it was a new category, I, I felt accomplished enough in, in narrative nonfiction to be able to tackle that. But then he said, we have a cookbook by Danielle Balud with Melissa Clark, and this is underway and you'll need to, you'll need to finish it. Um, and I will admit, I was quite a bit in over my head. It was all new. I uh, I had never eaten at a restaurant such as Danielle's before. I had never edited a recipe. I'd never been to a photo shoot. Um, I was very lucky that the book was in process. It was in layout, so I, I was able to learn as I went. But it was it was sort of thrilling, you know. I'd never thought about the food category before, and I realized I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and Dan did have some esteemed food titles already on the list, and he had published the paperback of Anthony Bourdain's uh, Kitchen Confidential, um, and there were other titles at the time. And so I started telling literary agents, which is mostly how we got our projects in, I started telling them, oh, I do food now, you know, and send me proposals for food books. And simultaneous to that, I was talking to Echo's marketing department and explaining to them I'm doing food books now. And there's this thing on the rise, these like food bloggers, and all they do is talk about food. And, and then I started signing up food bloggers. And there was even this one food blog called Waiter Rant. I don't know if you remember it, but he was an anonymous blog and yes, I wrote his I memoir. I wrote his memoir and I remember even on publication day, we revealed his name and it hit the New York Times bestseller list and he was on Oprah. And I thought, oh my God, this is so exciting. It was almost like I'd hit a new level as an editor. And it was really because of I was entering the food category. And by the time I left Echo, actually, food books were half of my half of my book list. And it was a range from very accomplished chefs to emerging chefs to food writers. And it, it coincided with food having this really broader moment. And so I still had one foot in the in the non-food world, but now I was seen as a cookbook editor. And it was really exciting to be to be a part of that. You mentioned the timing of this of when you were moving into food which is the late aughts. So, you know, 2008, mm -hmm. uh, you go over Clarkson Potter. And around that time, food had really just crossed over or was, I mean, beginning to cross over, starting into the golden age of restaurants and food seen as a successful medium and things like that. Um, but I have to imagine that, and not to be gauche about it, but the financial success of cookbooks and publishing, and as you said, these people being on Oprah, must have shifted and helped shape the the industry. So how did you use this new, I guess, position of food in the mainstream to commission the books that you were looking for? And what were you looking for 
in signing authors and things like that during this time? Yeah, well, Clarkson Potter was interesting. I went there in 2008, and this is the moment when Food Network was absolutely everywhere. And those show hosts, whether they were actual chefs or whether they were personalities, they were kind of becoming superstars. Like their pictures were on buses going by, you know? I remember going to the South Beach Wine and Food Festival every year when I was at Clarkson Potter and these Food Network hosts would go there and people would be sort of screaming or crying, just wanting to touch them and talk to them. I mean, they really, this heightened heightened moment um, in food, a lot of it through Food Network and in turn through, through books that were being published. You know, more people were reading Eater. There was Eater and Serious Eats. And it seemed like at that time, people who you thought may not be into food were all of a sudden talking about where they were eating dinner and what cookbooks they bought and what they were making at home and some dinner party they had. And so it all kind of went hand in hand. It was a great moment for me. I, uh, I had this mandate actually to sign up debut author stars on the Food Network um, with the hopes of getting those books on the bestseller list. Um, I was and I was also told to continue with the house author, Rachel Ray. I worked with her for many years and I worked with a lot of hosts from Food Network. Um, and we had many, many leaks on the bestseller list. Um, the list was sent to us by the New York Times every Wednesday at 5 p.m. And Wednesdays, like starting at four o'clock, we would just all hold our breath to see if the books were on the list or not. So there was that whole angle to what I was doing at Clarkson Potter, which was very exciting. Um but at the same time, I was also Alice Waters' editor at Potter, and I had a really special working relationship and friendship with her. We spoke every Friday for all of my six years there, um, which was quite special. Um, but I also signed up chefs who were considered accomplished, but also thought of as sort of emerging, um, who didn't have cookbooks yet, like Hugh Atchison and Chris Cosentino. Um, and I also wanted to keep my foot in the door of this narrative nonfiction that I've been doing for so long. So I signed up Provence 1970 uh, by Luke Barr. It was about his great aunt, MFK Fisher, um, in this amazing period in 1970 when she was with James Beard and other food luminaries in Provence. Um, but I was also working with brands. I was working with Martha Stewart Living on their books and Big Gay Ice Cream and Splendid Table, which is on public radio. And then there was another angle of what I was doing at Potter where I was working on celebrity crossover books. So I did the Portlandia oh. cookbook with Fred Armisen and I did home cooking books with Eva Longoria and Trisha Yearwood. And they were all rewarding experiences. You know, this was my first job where I was 100% in food and I totally embraced it and loved it. Um, and I found that, you know, I used to get invited to like literary award book parties and that wasn't happening anymore. Everything, all the events <laughs> that I was going to, it was all, all food. And it was like, food was my thing. You know, this, this was it. Uh, fun fact, Darren and I are in some of the photos in the big A ice cream book. We made it <gasps> oh, in. Oh my book. goodness. If so, yeah. you can you can go back there and, and listen. Darren produced a party for them for the Great Guga Muga, okay. uh, which is like just a little slice of food history. Um, oh, that's so fun! We did, yeah, they did the photos like a yearbook, and so yeah. everyone, yes, with the great props and uh, yeah, there's a picture of, of me and uh, and my son as well in that book. Yeah, oh, that's so this, great. This sounds incredible. A wonderful six years of. Uh, of just magic and varied, even though it's in within discipline. And then 2014, the queen of cookbooks, Amelia from Fade and reaches out and offers you the commissioning editor position. 
what went through your head? Um, what was the conversation like? And for those who don't know the difference, what is the what is a commissioning editor, and how did it differ from your previous role? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, she is the queen of cookbooks, certainly, and it was incredible. I mean, Amelia's email came quite by surprise, frankly. I knew that Fiden published exquisite books, and I knew they were based in Europe, but I I didn't know too much about the company. And I didn't know anyone who'd worked there. Um, and up until that point, from what I'm describing, you can tell that I've been working entirely with American authors and books that were published just in America. And my work had been pretty commercial up until that point. I'd always worked for a major corporate publisher. And so this opportunity to work and seek out chefs, not only from the U.S., but Latin America and all over the world, and to know that the books would be published around the world to such a wide audience was really, really thrilling. Um, the company had just been purchased by an American family when I started in 2014, and they decided it was going to be headquartered in both London and New York. Uh, we had new leadership. Amelia was moving from London to New York. And here I had this chance to be part of a company with this very deep history, almost a hundred years old, but also a new beginning. And the books were so beautifully designed and you know, keep in mind, too, that my focus before had been mostly working with agents on proposals that they were shopping. And this commissioning role was completely different. It meant that I would be scouting this country and elsewhere for unique culinary perspectives, if you will. So my eyes were quite open to this new culinary world. Chefs who focused on tasting menus. And I traveled to Mexico and London and doing daily video calls with chefs and writers from all over the world. So it was it was a phase of my career that I couldn't have possibly imagined. And I feel so very lucky to be there and to, to represent Fiden. I've had some opportunities to, to talk about Fiden out in the world. And, and one of those highlights was when I spoke to Chef uh, Dan Barber's staff of 200 employees at Stone mm. Barnes. And I thought, my God, I would have never been able to do this before. It was just, I felt really, really proud to be a part of Fiden and to have that sort of opportunity. I mean, being there since 2014, the last six years, obviously up through March of this year with the pandemic, has really just been unbelievable for the food world and how it's expanded and the people involved and the manifestos written and the restaurants turned art projects like Favacon. You know, like there's just so many ways that food has been represented out in the world and you have then turned those experiences and those philosophies into books. So we'd love to see a little bit of how the sausage is made now that you've become a a, uh, a professional sausage maker in the food world. Um, you know, some of the books that you commissioned that you were proud about, maybe even some of the books that you really wanted but maybe never happened, um, but just like a peek behind the curtain of, of what you've gotten to work on in the last six years. Absolutely. Also, just to frame it, I believe that anyone listening to this is also probably looking for any types of hints or clues <laughs> to get into your your brain and, you know, w- what is, you know, looked for and appreciated and what you consider above uh, above all else. 
Sure. Well, um, well, I'll tackle the first part of that question about, um, you know, the last six years and some of the books that I've had the opportunity to publish. Um, I guess when I started at Fiden, I was I was focusing on exploring Latin America. So I had this chance to work with Enrique Olvera on two of his books and commissioned Virgilio Martinez, who's in Peru, and uh, Rodolfo Guzman, who's in Chile. And then we published Tacopedia, which had originally been published in Mexico and we did a culinary Bible on Cuba. So that that was a lot of fun for me, really exploring a, a new part of the world. Um, we also have these culinary Bibles that Fiden has been publishing for some time and that we continue to, a real focus on a region or a country to explore their food culture and, and the cuisine of what's being cooked at home. And I'm very proud. Um, I started up a spinoff series of that that's based on single subjects. So we did a book on vegan cooking, Jewish cooking, and breakfast done by Emily Elise Miller, who you know. Um, so they all have passionate experts at the helm, but there are hundreds of recipes around the globe on those subjects. I had never worked before on a book with hundreds of recipes before. So it's really a deep dive into a cuisine or a subject, which, um, which was very rewarding. Um, and then in the last six years, also, we moved into a new subcategory of beverage. So we did the books, um, Where Bartenders Drink and Where to Drink Coffee. Those were spinoffs of our Where Chefs Eat series. Um, we published a book called Food and Beer. And I had the great honor to work with the late Sasha Petrosky on his mm. book regarding cocktails before his passing. And we were fortunate to continue the project with his wife, Georgette, um, but that was our first recipe book of, of uh, drink, drink recipes. Um, and we just published Spirited by Adrian Stillman, which is another one of these single subject Bibles with hundreds of incredible recipes, stories with every recipe. The recipes are from around the world. So I'm, I'm very proud of, of that book um, as the latest in our beverage category as well. Um, but then my goodness, I mean, I've just, I've been so lucky. I got to work with Jeremy Fox uh, in California for his oh, yeah. vegetables. I mean, such a gem. And here in Brooklyn, Frederick Berselius of Oscar. Um, of course, Jeremiah and Fabian of Contra and Wild Air. I'm meeting at Wild Air tonight to celebrate my son's 16th birthday. Um, Cooking in Marfa by Rocky Burnett and Virginia Lieberman in Texas. And well, I guess they're all my favorites. I, I feel very lucky because it's this it's this curated list. And then there's your book, which is the yeah. most recent, very recent book of mine to be published. It's not my book. It's your book, um, which is one of the coolest books ever. I mean, I'm just going to pause for a moment to congratulate you because the passion and the dedication and the effort to mining and creating all that amazing uh, content is really something. And then there's the amazing... Uh, design on top of it so omnivore me, <laughs> yeah, yeah omnivore so for me the magic just came from so many angles to to make that book come together so congratulations i know your your global tour has just just begun yes uh well thank you thank you and i i think kind of you you've touched so many diverse things and well first off thanks for being our commissioning <laughs> editor uh i think if i had known your history a little bit better, I definitely would have not approached you in the way that I did in that <laughs> lobby that one day. I would have probably been too terrified to do that, but uh, I guess ignorance is bliss. Um, you, you, you know, even with all of these titles, there is still such like a diverse range. Uh, I'm curious, you know, like what is the common thread or threads that you look for 
when someone is proposing a project to you. And I, and I can only imagine you were telling us before we started the interview that you must see thousands. Like people must just like know who you are by now, have your email sent to you. So like, what is it now that catches your attention? And over time, have you seen really works um, to make a project agreement? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting question because I think um, for previous positions that I've had, I know exactly what the mandate is. You know, at Clarkson Potter, it was Food Network. At, at Echo, it was the narrative nonfiction and then specific kinds of food books. I feel very lucky at Fine that we're really able to dream as commissioning editors. And we're looking for something unique and special. It's not like I'm looking for a book just on this topic or I'm just looking for a chef who has this many social media followers. That's, that's much, much less of interest to me. I basically, as a commissioning editor, just have this long, long list of things I'm thinking about all the time. Mm. You know, it could be restaurants, it could be chefs, it could be writers or ideas. And, and I'm lucky to have great colleagues around as well. And of course, Amelia is wonderful to bounce ideas around and she signs up books as well. But we're, we're always looking for something unique with a really strong point of view that hasn't been done before. It should be sophisticated for our global audience, but it should be approachable. It should be interesting. Um, and these are books to read. They're not just to cook from. And that's very special about your book as well. So it has to really all come together as a book. It's, these books are not just collections of recipes. There's so much more than that. And so I really only do sign up a, a few chefs every year and a handful of books. So there is a lot of exploring um, there's a lot of talking to people to figure out what could work. And so it's just got to be, it's got to be unique and interesting and special and something that no one else could do, but the person who's proposing the book, which is in your case, exactly how it happened. Yes. Uh, which sometimes even holding it, I think I still have to pinch myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. Like, did we do this? <laughs> uh you know, obviously the publishing world is not, um, you know, sort of sitting outside the bubble of current events and unaffected by what's going on in the world. And, you know, the world right now feels a little just uh, uncertain, especially with coronavirus and the social revolution, you know, Black Lives Matter that's been going on this year. And I have to imagine that with books being commissioned so far out, there's no way that that doesn't turn everything upside down. But how has Faden, how have you adapted and how are you looking toward the future, uh, you know, when things like this on a global scale pop up? Yeah, I mean, I do like to think that Fiden has long been a forward thinking publisher. Um, but of course, the world events run through our minds as we consider how to publish and what we'll publish. So this is actually a pretty exciting time for the food world, even with so many restaurants closing or, or chefs rethinking their course forward. There's this awareness of so many different types of food cultures and, and, and people in the food world. And so for me, I'm actually really looking forward to continuing my exploration of who and what could, could warrant a great book for Fiden in these times. Amazing. Well, Emily, uh, we want to thank you for being on Snacky Tunes. Normally, this is where we give out people's information, but we will keep that a secret <laughs> for you. Uh, good luck to the fellow spoofs out there. And once again, uh, thank you for commissioning our book. I think uh, it has been uh, life-changing uh, in the process, and we really appreciate you seeing something. So, you know, thanks for being on the show, and, and really thank you for uh, believing in the project. 
My absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much. We are going to play another song from the archives, and then we will be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes here on HRN. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. 
And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Uh, well, we want to welcome Dragonette to the studio. Welcome. Hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, and welcome to Brooklyn. Yeah, welcome to Brooklyn. Well, thanks. <laughs> Do you guys make it out here often? Um, this could be our third or fourth time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. actually, That's not fair. very often. I really I, I, I don't know where the hell I am when I'm over well, here. Well, you're, you're eating uh, pizza royalty right now. Yeah, this is no, it's it technically tasted, it's Bushwick. It tasted really royal. Actually. Yeah, very regal. Why don't we go around the room? Why don't you introduce yourselves, who you are, what you do? I'm Joel. I'm a drummer. I'm Martina. And I sing. I'm Dan. I play keyboards. And we have uh, Neil down there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On the ground. Neil. We, sound man Neil. Shout out to, sound. You gotta, gotta give a shout out to the sound people. He's sound, sound royalty. Sound royalty. <laughs> shout out to, to Girly Action for making this happen. Yeah, thank you to Sarah and Dana. Um, so I first heard of you guys... Um, when Van Chi remixed you back in like 2007, Long probably the ago. coolest remix of Dragonette to date. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, just for those, all, when Van Chi put out all those remixes in 2007, it was literally like, wh- how much can you play in your set before you're just <laughs> pretending to be Van Chi? And <laughs> <laughs> I hope no, no one really asked me, so I, I never got called on it. Yeah. But um, so I've been a big fan and really excited to have you guys on here. But uh, let's take it back to 2007 for a second. How did you guys form? How did uh, you know some youngsters from Canada get together and? Um, I think we're gonna have to take it back a little farther than that than oh. 2007. <laughs> Wasn't it 2005? 2005. Yeah, we uh, uh, technically the very end of 2004. It was whoa. December 2004. Wow, wow. so we're almost hitting 10 years. Yeah, it's embarrassing. We uh, it's it taken us, us a long time, time to get to Brooklyn, <laughs> <laughs> which is really what this whole interview is about. Totally, yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, no, Dan and I met at a festival that we were playing, and then Dan and I, Dan got me drunk. And we started a band. First we got married, then we started a band, then we, uh, or no, then we started writing songs. Martina was a uh, solo songwriter, singer-songwriter. I played in an electronic uh, instrumental band. Shout them out. Um, they, it was called The New Deal. We stopped uh, last year. And, um, and so, uh, anyway, I, tr- I tried to find a way to convince Martina to, that was a good I- it would be a good idea that we try and work together so that we would actually have spent some of our lives together. And, uh, and so I wrote a track, Martina sang on it, and that became the song called I Get Around, which uh, Vanshee remixed. And uh, <laughs> during that time, um, we met Joel. He wanted to play in a cool band. We needed a cool drummer. Like, hey, Joel, hey, have I- you always wanted to play in a cool band? Band yeah, because I know we, we're thinking of starting a cool band. That's pretty much what we <laughs> drop all those. Wait, drop all those uncool bands yeah. you're playing. Wait, in. I need, Why to, don't you join I need a cool to ask: band. was was forming the band more of just a way to like date her, or to actually form a band? And just, <laughs> just well, no, 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 no. It was, it was, uh, it was. They were mutually beneficial, I think. But we were, we were, we were actually married. We were like living in a house together. Oh, okay. well, we also we were, got married after like four months. It was really weird. Yeah. And okay. so, uh, so, but it could have been at the time I wasn't thinking straight. It was about music and it was ten parent. years ago. Yeah, I, and you, yeah, I, I can't yeah. remember now, yeah. man. I, Wait a second. Uh, where from Canada are you from? We're from Toronto. Okay, love Toronto. Good place. Such a great. Where I, do you like to eat in Toronto? What's the specialty over there? Well, uh, that I would say it would probably be a pizza place called Taroni, which uh, 
well, yeah, definitely sits. That's the pizza royalty of Toronto. I, really? I think we struggle to pull ourselves out of the Toroni uh, quicksand every time we go to Toronto because Tina and I live in in uh, London now. So when we go back, we go back to our favorite restaurants. But Joel, who lives in Toronto full time, probably is a little more hip on uh, what's <laughs> what's opened up in the last seven years. Joel, uh, La Carnita <laughs> is my new favorite sp- spot. It's a taco place. On College Street. I think they Check pronounce it, it taco in Toronto. Taco. Yeah, taco. Yeah. Are you a Maple Leafs fan? No, no, not at all. Um, but Martina's dad is a Blue Jays fan. That's as Dan, close yeah, as we Dan's get to. Yeah, Dan's not a sports guy, nor is Joel. No. no. Well, that they don't look at Joel's beard. There's no way he could be a sports fan. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we just talk about sports here. Yeah. Really? Lure you with music uh, and go right to sports. No. Cool. Okay. Just well, you'll have to keep it at baseball because it's the only place, <laughs> or, 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 or football. Are there any Canadian expats cooking food over in London? Do you have like a? Poutine place or something like that. No, actually, there's no. I don't think anybody would know what the fuck you're talking about if you said the word poutine in London. There's actually one guy who just moved back to Toronto who I met in London who is was working at like the craziest restaurant there, which is called St. John's, which is the oh, first yeah? nose to tail eating restaurant. But it's the most yeah. British restaurant in the world. There's nothing Canadian. Yeah, about except it. he's just gone back to Toronto and is doing basically a pop up of nose to tail eating. And his last, his first venture like two weeks ago was um, the entire pig, and uh, which is pretty ballsy for Toronto and he did great he did it in a, in a, in a nightclub actually really it's which pretty, nightclub um, it's uh, the Orbit Room which is like a jazzy place where there's always somebody playing Hammond organ in there. We've, uh, yeah, um, totally. where you go to retire as a as a good, good musician. Yeah. You want to shout the, who's the chef? What's your, what's your friend's name? Uh, I only know him as Noah. He uh, he's a very ballsy young guy who um, I was actually blown away by his idea. I was like, really, man, yeah, you're really so going to try that? Yeah, I thought he was an asshole. Yeah, I, well, I thought he was. It's, uh, as, as most chefs, as most chefs uh, yeah. Just if we're not using a last name here, you can admit it. Yeah, it, oh, you know what? Because he's he, there are a lot of guys named Noah who are doing nose to tail pop ups yeah, in Toronto. Yeah. So yeah. I'm glad who we started in London. At, what was the name yeah. of the restaurant in London that he worked at? What was that address where he lived at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what what With we the have, asshole? Yeah. Noah, that guy? No, we were just talking about the part of the pig that he was using. All right, let's all. Yeah, yeah. My to foot. sing a song. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll come back and we'll talk more about what's going on. We'll yeah, talk about the new record. Now Tina, you're on on okay. spotlight. Uh here we go, Dragonette, live on Snacky Tunes. Do you need headphones? Oh no. Do I? Do I is the sound gonna come in here? Do I need headphones? Uh why don't we throw them on? They're right there. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Oh, not those ones. That's the bottle of tequila. Or no. It's, what is that? It's barbecue sauce. Barbecue sauce wow. from Maple Smokehouse. Okay. They met drinking tequila. Well, that's a good way to start a relationship. Yeah. It was oh, yeah, what were you, oh, wait, you said he got you drunk. What did he get oh, you drunk on? Well, somebody had come into my uh, trailer and drunk all that's my vodka, true. and so Dan was like, don't worry, girl. I got a whole, I got a I got uh, a whole rider of vodka. Here, drink this. Canadian Royal, right? Yeah, Crown Royal. <clears throat> no, I not Crown Royal. I got a Crown Royal bag. All right, we'll, uh, we'll do <laughs> okay. that. Okay. No, Dan. No, I will not. <laughs> okay. Okay, what song are we doing? Pick up the phone. Oh, my God. I love the also Vanshee remix of this. <laughs> Staple of our set for a while as well. Yeah. Nice. Right. Here we go. Dragonette live on Snacky Tunes. Pick up the phone. <laughs> Come on, cherry, cherry. Still, that's not the beginning. <laughs>
So awesome. Thank you. So amazing. So it's funny, huh? Because Dragonette comes and does an acoustic set, and it's like more electronic than actually when, we're, when we play a live show. Uh, <laughs> what, I mean, the live show. Well, Sorry, a lot. I'm supposed to be speaking to this much, we were, right? Uh, we were talking, you were telling about the live show where you actually remember <laughs> seeing us in the front row. Yeah, no, I saw you guys at Santos when we played here. Oh and my. already I get, I get really like, when I come to New York... I'm always like, oh my god, it's the coolest city on earth. I'm so scared of everybody. <laughs> and Wasn't then, that show like a like a year ago? Yeah, it was a long time ago. But I just remember because you guys were, you were wearing the same thing and you looked the same and you and we were not wearing the exact same thing. I'm sorry, you were wearing the exact same thing and you had the exact same facial hair and I, the same glasses. And I'm not shitting. I you. guess our parents must have dressed us when we were like eight years old <laughs> that night. Set us out to the shows. And I just remember being on stage and being like, oh my God, those guys look so rad. And, and you guys, and I was trying to make you smile at me because I was like, wait, are they, do they like this? And I was smiling at you. And we you were guys obviously were there. Judging, watching, you know, <laughs> that actually might be the first occurrence where I was like, dude, I think she's looking at me where like she actually is. I was staring no at you. No offense to the husband. <laughs> no, no, no. But, in like, no. but in like the million shows I've gone to with like lead singers that were females or anything, like, like we always leave the show and be like, uh, she was looking at me. It's like, no, dude, I'm pretty sure she was looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking at both of you, okay? Um, <laughs> so you guys, I mean, speaking of tour and everything, you guys have had a a pretty incredible last year. I know end of 2010, you guys were going to go back into the studio and recording the new album, which is going to be Body Parts, coming out September. But then you guys got a hit record, like a giant, not just like yeah. a hit record. No, it was giant. It was a giant <laughs> hit record, Hello, which was Everywhere, every place we went out, every night we went to, it was there. <laughs> what is that like? What is that like to be like? We're wrapping it up. I'm gonna go, you know, put the kettle on, yep. and they're like, "Oh no, you're going back out on the road because you have, you know, top of the charts to play." Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was really crazy. But it's not just like it's not going out on the road, really. It's like, here, go fly to this weird country and play in this like nightclub right. in for a, ten it, minutes. Yeah, you know, I just need you guys to get, play for ten minutes. Get on yeah. a plane on a Wednesday night, arrive on Thursday, play for fifteen minutes in like Manila. Coming from North America, and then because that's like, the kind of world it is, right? It's right. like, it's like was, a dance, a much more dance club kind of song. Yeah, so I that's was the kind of scenario we in, in Spain like a couple months ago, and I saw a mom and like her six-year-old toddler, or I guess three-year-old toddler, like she was teaching him dance moves to that song <laughs> in a van in the streets of Barcelona. I was nice. like, I was like this. I was like, this is crazy. Uh, did you get some video? That's I didn't. Awesome. Um, I didn't, but just trust me, it happened. Yeah, it kind of put writing. Um, uh, on hold or it was like it just became very sporadic and you had to like get in 
get get back to the studio and be like, okay, one, one, two, three, be creative, and then oh, and then get <laughs> no, on the that's plane. That's how it works, right? Minutes. I'm pretty sure that's how creativity works. Totally. Yeah. There's actually there's a there's a switch on our desk back at the studio in London. You just turn that on, like and the fucking switch hits come up. Work switch, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's like right next to the auto. It's auto tune creative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, what was the craziest gig in that? What was the you go? No one's gonna believe this. I'd say Manila is up high up there. Yeah. The other, yeah, well, I would well, say the Manila thing was really funny too. Because Dubai it, was nuts. No, Beirut was crazier because of the immigration, oh, uh, yeah. military, police, and prostitution component that would take way too long to explain. But I would say that. Uh, <laughs> Can you give us a little? We got, we got, we got a little yeah. bit. The we, bottom uh, line is that Dan and I, Joel and I, ended up being driven around the cool sites of Beirut. On, on, on our last day before we went to the airport and Joel ended on up on somebody else's on somebody else's bill yeah like, some guy just was like I gotta show really you. rich and, dude and like, my, my job was to go and get us retroactive performance visas so that we'd be allowed to leave the country and I was in a line of with 12 other entertainers all of whom happened to be Eastern European prostitutes and well, we my, were all getting the what same type of visa. entertainment are we talking about here well yeah. it's it's a it's broadly it's yeah. a it's a loose uh, definition there yeah but, I bet it was but loose. the nice men who oh, spoke who spoke, who spoke Russian and Arabic they uh, they were uh, helping those girls um, do uh, write do their, their contracts jobs, yeah. there yeah. with the nice military policemen anyway so our experience this is, is all happening while Tina and I are, are witnessing one of the natural wonders of the uh, world. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, our, so, yeah, our experiences that's... of Beirut were very different from Dan's. Mine but, felt yeah. a little more authentic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't Why don't we get another song? Wait, how was the food in Beirut? Awesome. It was good. Yeah. Good. What'd you eat there? We ate. Well, actually, the, play, the club we played was like a fusion, so we had some like. Yeah, we had tuna tartare, <laughs> and then. But uh, then we went up to this, next... this like oldest city in the world called Biblos or something, and and we ate some you know Which authentic like Middle ancient, Eastern food. Ancient marina. Ancient with, marina. Yeah, ancient yeah. marina like food. Did it have one of those beaches that? When you see a photo of it in airports, you go, "I want to go there," but I don't know where that is. But yeah, Beirut yeah, beaches don't—they're um, they, the government. Uh, well, they belong to the government, and in order to use them, people have to rent them. So people have to pay to use them. So nobody does anything on the beaches in Beirut. It's really crazy. The club that we played was on the beach, except that it was—you were barred from going to the beach. From oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> of course. It's a nat- national security. It's a national thing. security issue. Yeah, All right. So, so uh, what songs next? What we're we got? Play um, "Live in This City." This is actually a. Uh, a a debut of sorts. Oh, awesome. Anyway. Snacky um, Tunes exclusive. Yeah, totally. We used to have an air horn when that happened, but we got banned from doing that. (laughs) So, for all the right reasons. Yeah, for all the right reasons. Oh, Christ. Well, and uh, and we're sending Tina out uh, in a rubber dinghy all by herself in this song because Joel and I are going to do very little. Uh, you guys are going to clap your hands up. Okay, we're going to clap. Okay. Okay. You guys got to clap with us. Yeah, we'll clap with oh, you. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. you know yeah. it. It's self explanatory Okay, yeah. all right. Cool. <laughs> and are we ready to laugh? Yeah, are you going to count me in the right time? Yes. Set? Well, I can't hear it, but okay, here we yeah, go. You can. Yeah, okay. No, no, I can. I think I can. I started a- I only live in this city, live 
Nicely done, guys. Thanks. Thank wow. you. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. clapping. Yeah. Yeah. That's a loud clap. <laughs> all, all those years of learning beat matching finally just yeah. paid off. <laughs> uh, so, you guys got out of the foreign countries, got back home, and now you recorded a record that's coming out in September. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you want to talk about the new record? Um, Body it's the best parts. record ever made. <laughs> <laughs> At least in our home studio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's exciting. It's a fun, sunny little record. That was a fun, sunny track. Thank you. Um, yeah, we made most of it was made in our home. Um, it has, yeah, we we just Wait, it was home Toronto or in home London, London? Um, and it's a very small studio. And it was made made almost exclusively under the influence of jet lag. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I heard that's some powerful stuff. Yeah. Not <laughs> legal in America anymore. Totally. Well, it depends if you shoot it or you smoke. Yeah. It. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I'll wrap there with basalts. Yeah. But, t- but tell us about the album. Tell us about what, what, what's uh, inspiration. As a, as a long-time two fans, what can we expect from the new one? Um, I think it actually... It, it, a lot of the... Um, the uh, what, was, what am I looking for? <laughs> like the, the mind frame while I was... At least while I was doing my job. Was um <laughs> was trying to like put some more sunshine and daytime into into electro dance music because it's very like it's all over in like the club. for like top forties radio is like hard dance music about right. like darkness and nighttime and lasers and you know kind of the opposite of the track that we came on to on yeah seriously <laughs> more hey <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no I'm just, I don't want to say it but more, thank you I'm speaking more like content li- lyrically yeah. as, as maybe track wise or musically is, is the second but I think lyrically um, there's a lot of, of that nighttime thing and I just kind of was like and maybe it was because we, we were like flying around the world and playing at like 3am for four minutes 
Um, right. And maybe I just kind of wanted a little bit of the opposite of that. And so I feel like there's some, there's a lot of light and, and sunshine and green expanses. I mean, speaking of, <laughs> speaking of sunshine, you can't get much more sunshine than what you're playing on Friday, though. Good morning, well, America. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's sunrise. What, ta- what time is it again? Like, those are like 7 a.m., right? It's a 3 a.m. call. As no, what it's not. No, yeah. it's not. Yeah. Doors are at 6? Yeah. You just yeah. ruined my week. Ooh. Yeah. Wait a second, but yeah. we don't have to be there at 3. We have to be there at like 4.15. Hey. Two words. Stay up. Oh, yeah. Uh, no. There isn't enough pancake that can die. Uh, hey, club close at four. You go from the club <laughs> to GMA. Are I'm you guys DJing Wednesday night? Oh We're actually God. DJing Thursday night. We're actually DJing Thursday night. Oh. Wow. Nice. Oh, no. Thursday oh, yeah, night. Thursday that's Thursday the night. Yeah. Sorry. That's, uh, yeah, 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 Thursday night. Leave our, we'll come. Yeah. You guys will help us stay up. Oh yeah, and then you'll just come to Good Morning. Oh yeah, we'll just we'll, we'll just we're gonna. And then I'll entourage. have to hop a plane at seven, so perfect. Oh, nice. We're gonna yeah. have to we're gonna have to do a lot of jet lag on Thursday. A night. lot of yeah. jet lag. That mainline, but <laughs> mainline that jet lag. But, uh, but the concert's free. Yeah. Hold on, this is really exciting. What? Good morning, America. Good morning, America. That is really. I mean, exciting. I don't know if you have reference points being Canadians and it's, Londoners. No, good morning, video, Canada right? is not the, the uh, same, yeah. same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's that about? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, but nailed it. It's uh, it's free, and then you guys are giving away VIP tickets and entry on your Twitter and Facebook and all that good stuff. Um. Yes. Yeah. Question mark. And you, and you guys are going to be there, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's another Ab- bonus. Uh, absolutely. We'll be right in the front for you, Tina. Yeah. Just like, okay, just staring. <laughs> wearing, wearing, wearing like matching pajamas. Judging, watching. And then you guys are going on tour the whole rest of the summer into the fall with uh, the Knox, right? Yeah. Well, well, the the rest of the summer is a bit like here and there, and a, uh, a little sample, bit of sample sample itinerary: Argentina, Moscow, Kiev. Wow, I know that route. Yeah. yeah, I know that run. Yeah, I, there's a direct flight actually. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's yeah. really. I think cheap cheap tickets does like a one way. Yeah, yeah, hop. totally. Uh, but then and then, and then uh, in September and October is full on with the Knox. Yep. Awesome, amazing. And that's gonna be full support of the album. Yeah. When yes. are you gonna be back in New York? Uh, September, some twelve. Twelve. Yes. At Webster Hall. That's you have a cheat sheet in front of you. What? Yo, do not. Do not. Oh, did I lift, no, did it's I, because he studies. Yeah, the, don't do not lift the the curtain to the magic mysteries of radio. Yeah. Um, all right, so what are the nuts and bolts? Thank you so much. What do you guys? Where, where where can everyone find your music and everything? Um, where uh, you mean like websites? And sure, Twitter. You can t- and type in Dragonet Torrent, and you'll get everything you need. <laughs> um, but uh, please we're, buy we're, the album. We're Dragonet.com. Um, we are At Twitter. Dragonet. Yeah, on and. Twitter. And Facebook.com forward slash Dragonet. There you go. And uh, what's your favorite uh, London London dish, British dish that's now in your new hometown? Oh, that would be. I think probably Joel would uh, would be there with me when we we like the the crackling skin of the roasted pork on Sunday. I had Sunday, something very uh, similar here. Pork yeah. belly but, is what it's called. Yeah, if you but order it, no. it at a pub, oh, it needs to come with the skin though. Oh yeah, um, that sounds is, awesome. Uh, you specifically like the skin on the pork belly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, when it's good. cooked, when it's cooked right. And your favorite pint? Uh, I'm still a European beer man myself. I'll go with a cold Cronenberg anytime. Oh. No offense to the British beer. No offense to British beer, but no, I, I'm not a huge fan of British beer either. No. Uh, all right, let's get one more tune in before we uh, get out. What are you gonna play? What are you gonna this, take us out? This is called "Let It Go," and it's we got a little bit of a, a little startup here that we can even start with right now. That's uh, courtesy of Layback Luke. Um, this is uh, we just like to play a little bit of his remix at the beginning of our version of this song. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank we- you guys. Here we go. You got a little bit of time still, Tina. Oh, okay. We're almost there. We're getting there. 
this just to set that kind of clubby mid-afternoon mood. Dan's gonna give a play-by-play of the song as we go. Yeah, it, and so. now this is where Tina starts. Can you or not lower yet. Tina's vocal a little bit? Maybe you can hear Dan on the top. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.